Hey everybody, this is Casey Smith, and this is episode 3 of NS Team Things. Uh, I'm coming to you on December 24th, Christmas Eve, 2019. Holidays have been uh, a bit crazy this year, a lot going on, but uh, I'm actually able to take a little breather today just to uh, enjoy the time with the baby and just do some stuff with the family and just hang around and relax, not to worry about wrapping anything or attending anything so today's feeling pretty good so i had um a couple different topics that i was gonna talk about today some unique things that i've come across in the office and some things that are still um kind of in the works and uh some other stuff that was gonna take a little more time and go into a bit more detail so we're gonna hold off on a couple of them um but one of the ones that I'd like to mention, which is a bit, uh, a bit easier, um, and something that is somewhat resolved, we're just kind of waiting for the patient to uh, push themselves a little bit harder. Uh, we had a, uh, a father and son come in, and the uh, the son was a desk worker, uh, did a lot of CAD design stuff like that, and um, was a gamer too. So pretty much he sat at a desk the majority of his day and he would um, slouch into that position. Very common. He was also very tall, uh, which you can find this in uh, many taller people, especially women. Um, They don't tend to, well, not all, but some don't tend to own the space uh, that they are given. So a lot of them you'll find uh, they slouch. Uh, Women can do this if they um, grow taller than everybody else, say in like middle school, high school. Um, they will slouch to shrink themselves down uh, to kind of get down in the social atmosphere where their friends are. Um, just interesting kind of things that we'll see happen. The same will happen for, you know, young ladies that maybe develop a little bit earlier or busty at an early age. Um, they'll slouch to kind of conceal that um, and not make their, their breasts seem so large. Um, this kid was stuck in a similar pattern. I want to say he's about 6'5". And, um, his father had come in, I want to say a couple of days later. And, uh, the story of this, where I'm kind of going with this is that the father and son, although, um, they were very similar in a lot of the issues that they had, uh, both of them measured for, uh, leg length inequities. And interestingly enough, the son was just experiencing low back pain. The dad was actually experiencing uh, hip pain and the dad was a bit more active. He was a runner, uh, average about six, eight miles a run. And, uh, as I worked with them both, the, uh, the father, what I found interesting was he had measured, uh, that I believe his left side was lower when he first came in, pull up his note real quick. Um, oh, so actually he, uh, he not only measured with a pelvic tilt, but he measured with a pelvic flexion on the right side. So his, uh, his right hip was flexing more, which, you know, sometimes we'll see with leg length inequities and things like that. Um, so I went through and I said, and I kind of do this with all first patients, um, within their first, I'd say, depending on how it goes when I'm, you know, first, second and third appointment, uh, we don't have the ability to shoot x-rays, uh, like some areas do. So we kind of make do with what we have and in doing so, uh, we have to eliminate uh, certain things or make sure things are correcting properly. And one thing, uh, that we started working on with this gentleman was, uh, working his lateral hip, working in his glute minimus, 
some of the other flexors and stuff on the right side. Um, and then he also had some cranial imbalances, but he was a case where when he lied down, his cranium corrected. So for those of you that don't know or understand what I'm speaking of, the cranial correction or to perform cranial corrections, we take or we make corrections off of the lying down measurements. Um, that's when the uh, gravitational push on the body um, and the rest of the structural imbalances aren't are no longer feeding into the system. Uh, the cranium is able to be at rest uh, on the table when it's not supporting all that. And um, he measured great, uh, honestly, like no distortions, which is uncommon, um, especially with seeing what his son's patterns and things like that were. And um, where there's like a lot of headboard posture and in turn had developed some rotations and things like that. And his father didn't have this at all, but what was stuck was his hip and his, basically his hip was locked in such a position it was forcing his cranium to try to correct. And his cranium actually wasn't doing what we would want it to do. Um, and this kind of goes back to some love of the reactor stuff. And I believe I talked about a little bit in previous episodes, but basically we can't have the cranium and the pelvis locked in the same position. Uh, functionally, the body does not like that. It does not perform well that way. It adds more pressure on the nervous system, makes it harder for the body to move around in general. So um, first appointment, treated his lateral hip. Uh, second appointment, interestingly enough, uh, it switched. And when I saw these things, I hesitated on trying to put anything in a shoe because I didn't want to rush the process. Um, I've had it happen before where I put a lift in prematurely and someone overcorrected and it was just because if i would have done more soft tissue work in the beginning beginning we could have avoided the lift period um so when he had come back in i wanted to see you know where we see improvements and we had seen some excuse me but the um basically what had happened is everything switched his cranium was doing so much better uh, some of the shoulder issues and stuff had improved um, but his pelvis had switched entirely. So instead of having this like flexion disorder and one hip doing one thing and one hip doing another, um, it got rid of that, but it created a tilt, but it created a tilt to the opposing side. So doing my diligence, uh, when I see an overcorrection, uh, that usually tells me that there was an imbalance long ago that your body has then compensated over the top of. So you may see a measurement one way. And you're trying to treat an issue, say, on the left side. And they also have an older issue on the right side. Sometimes time is a factor. Sometimes it's trauma level. There's a lot that kind of goes into that. Um, but say they're... A good example would be, say, you see a, an elevated left shoulder. So we, we go to treat the elevators or treat and trap or treat and tricep, all this stuff. Um, if they have an oblique issue, say, on the opposite side, on the right side... That oblique could be overpowering what's occurring on the left. So you could be treating something on the left, thinking you're going down the right path, when in turn, if you were to correct the older, more traumatized area, the area that has more neurological feedback and is reacting um, more, if you can break that down, a lot of times you'll see the pattern switch. Uh, and this is what his case was doing. So after the right side had um, improved with how it was functioning and the health of the tissue, boom, the left side, something was going on there before pull the pelvis back into uh, the opposite distortion. So we spent that appointment treating that and uh, working on his shoulder a bit more. Great news, though, is that his Levitt reactor actually started coming back into synchronization. So his cranium was actually starting to balance itself when it was standing, which let me know that we broke up the initial pattern, which was 
flexed right hip and um, flexed right cranium. So when I just recently saw him, he, he's one of the individuals that you can tell is just very hesitant on getting back into a routine of running and things like that. Part of the, the right hip issue in the beginning was due to um, running. So he's, he's a bit fearful in that. But when he came back in, I was really astonished at the fact that, I mean, his cranium had maintained stability. His pelvis had actually leveled out. His shoulders had vastly improved as well. And I mean, everything was just coming together. I mean, this is a, a perfect example of you feel you have all these things going on and you do, you got some stuff going on. Um, but we're under the impression that some sort of surgery or some sort of physical therapy for eternity has to take place. And that's not the case. You know, this is session three for this gentleman. Uh, we spend roughly, you know, three hours and not all of that is hands-on time either. Uh, that's assessing and everything in between. Um, within three sessions, we've cleared a functional leg length inequity. Um, we've corrected the shoulder imbalances. We've got his cranium working perfectly. We've got this guy in a perfect place where now he can go back out. He can start to exercise, <clears throat> run a little heavier, get back into some of those routines, and then we'll see what flares up, if anything does. Uh, now in his son's case, uh, what's interesting is his son, because of the slouch pattern, um, because of the head forward posture and all this stuff, um, he had strained a lot of tissue in his neck. Um, he had brought some tissue in his, his upper back, uh, eccentric and his low back. And, um, I measured him, uh, after roughly about three sessions. And interestingly enough, his measurements kept getting worse. So one was, although they were related father and son, we sometimes will see that if mom or dad has a leg length, it can transfer down to one of the kids or, or multiple kids, or if one has maybe a predisposition to flat feet, you know, you name it. And he was this example where dad had functional imbalances. We were able to correct them. Everything started falling into place. Awesome. Um, whereas the son, as we made more corrections, we were peeling back the compensations his body had created over the years. So we were making him feel better, but at the same time, his body couldn't sustain this because it was wanting to revert back to those old patterns the minute he would more or less kind of leave the office. So this was, for me, a bit of a an eye-opening experience. I mean, we, I've seen patients come in where maybe they don't have a leg length and their kid does or something like that. But to see two people come in in the same week to see what dad's dealing with, to see what the son's dealing with, to not make assumptions, to not rush ahead and want to put a lift in, you know, prematurely when we haven't really done our diligence. Um, and then taking the time to notice significant imbalances that if corrected, not only do we end up taking less time from the patient, less money, everything. Um, we don't put them through unnecessary steps like, you know, putting them in a lift or, you know, adding a couple extra appointments because we need to explain certain things and go through certain things. Um, just doing your diligence. Now I will say his son was equally as interesting. Uh, and I believe this is kind of a stat that we go off of is for every, we'll say 50% of individuals with a, a leg length inequity, um, have what we call hemi pelvis. Uh, so basically what that means is when you're sitting down, uh, one pelvic bone or one, uh, uh, ilium is actually shorter. So the top of your ilium to the bottom of your ischium is shorter on one side. What that does is it creates the same pelvic tilt that you may be experiencing when you're standing upright. And 
uh, although this young man did sit down quite a bit, uh, like I'd mentioned, you know, being a desk worker and then playing games and things like that on a PC at night, um, his hips measured great. So when he was sitting, his body was actually trying to correct for the imbalances he was walking around with during the day. So I found that many patients will experience more pain when an area that is used to being contracted finally has a chance to alleviate or if the pattern tries to shift itself in that contracted tissue isn't wanting to release properly. So in his case, when he would stand upright, he would slouch, he would burden the spine, he would burden all the surrounding tissue, but he's also walking around with what ended up being uh, roughly a six millimeter um, left leg length and equity. And I was able to, as I saw things progressing, as the treatments went on, we put a lift in, started a little lower, went a little higher, ended up landing at six, did some muscle testing. He responded well to it. And, um, we could see everything start to, to change now. So what I anticipate happening in the future is now that he's actually been assigned a lift, we know that he needs it. It's not a functional imbalance like his father. It's actually structural. Um, then we can now, when he comes back in say, okay, you've been wearing the lift, your spine is under less burden. Your pelvis is under less burden. Your posture has improved because of all of this and getting some of these distortions to go away. How does your back feel now when you sit down? And what we'll find is when he goes back to a sitting position, now that we've we've begun correcting the standing distortions, we'll find that the burden of his body or the, uh, the shifting that should try to, or that wants to take place when he's sitting down, uh, is going to, it's already going to be there. His spine's not going to want to shift. Um, his pelvis is going to be level when he's standing. His pelvis is going to maintain that same, uh, levelness when he actually sits down, unless he's sitting crooked, things like that can be variables. Um, but in general, just structurally looking at this, the bones, we can find that if you're maintaining the same position all the time, uh, and you have good, good mobility, good tissue health, uh, the pain patterns eliminate because the dysfunction leaves the area. So, uh, I guess the easiest way to kind of think of it is you're, if you're experiencing pain, you have dysfunction, whether it be locally or maybe down the road a little bit. And there's a lot of different varieties of uh, ways things can manifest. Uh, but if you have pain, you have dysfunction in your body. And if you can correct that dysfunction, you may not be able to correct some of the damages that have already taken place, but you can maybe unbind a joint. Um, you can relieve tension on a tendon that could be potentially tearing something or potentially tearing itself. Um, and if you can alleviate that pressure on the body, the body then has opportunities to, to heal itself in whichever way that may be. Now that doesn't mean tendons are just going to reattach and things are going to heal up and herniations can disappear and all that. Um, what we'll find is as you alleviate pressure on the structure, the structure, structure will try to readapt. So if there is a herniation, we've seen cases where herniations will start to merge back into the disc because the pressure that caused the herniation created a wedging effect. And if the wedging effect is corrected, thus the herniation goes away because the herniation is only a symptom or a side effect of the, of the, uh, the wedging in the disc itself. Um, so some interesting things um, structurally there along the lines of leg length inequities. Um, and not having to, you know, look at a scan or just rely solely on a scan. Uh, this is something that can be assessed, you know, in person, um, through some of the basic measurement skills that we go through, uh, checking and rechecking, understanding the work that you're doing, understanding what's priority and kind of bringing all that stuff in a proper alignment. So you don't waste your time and you don't waste, waste the patient's time.
Now, uh, let's see. Which other one do I want to go into? <clears throat> this one is... Um, we'll talk about this one because it's, uh, it's actually very interesting to me. Never had anything like this happen before with a patient. Uh, I may have mentioned in the last one a little bit. Um, the last time I had touched on this topic or when I uh, worked on this patient was back in October. And what she had been dealing with, kind of the short of it, is she was suffering with hot flashes. Um, she had been doing some cleanses, things like that, through another practitioner that I work with, and they were helping. What she was finding was she had a lot of heavy metals in her body, and her body wasn't purging them out. She went through a process of that. It helped. Hot flashes improved. They came back shortly thereafter. We had decided to do some cheek and TMJ work one day. What I had found uh, just by starting to work on her cheeks, and then I actually ended up working into her tongue and her sublinguals and her, uh, uh, basically the floor of her mandible. Um, as I worked into that area more and more, she kept noticing metal tasting. Uh, what that told me is that metal had either maybe stored up in the lymphatic system, had maybe stored up in certain glands. Um, we know glands uh, secrete. They don't pump necessarily. So that lack of movement um, and then all of the soft tissue contracting around it can create a very inhibited state. Uh, so things don't maybe function as well as they should, um, or maybe they're shutting down completely and they're just they're what we would maybe consider low functioning. Um, she, I want to say I heard kind of through another patient that she had noticed some relief from that, from the hot flashes. After doing that and having the metal release, I think she said she tasted it for about two days. Um, I'd seen her for a follow-up maybe about two, three weeks ago, and we were talking about things and I'd asked her about the hot flashes again. They'd came, come back and they'd come back by that point for about four weeks. And, uh, that's disappointing. You know, this was something that I didn't expect to change, but at the same time, it's like, whoa, this is a, this is a life changer. Like I want to say 40, 50% of the women I see have either experienced hot flashes or they're having them now. And for me to be able to change that or better understand how we could potentially inf influence that could potentially help me help other people down the road. So I wanted to try to understand what was happening. And as I looked back through her charts, I'd realized that we had only done that treatment once because she noticed such amazing results from it that we kind of switched gears and started working at some other things that she had come in with. And when I had seen her, it was about, I'd say eight weeks, six, eight weeks from, uh, the first treatment date, uh, for the, uh, the metal work. And when we went through her cheeks the second time, she didn't really notice too much from there, but immediately when we went to the floor of the mandible, started working through some of the hyoid muscles, um, started working around the tongue, uh, a boom, like immediately, immediately the metal taste came back. So what that had told me is we may have simulated, uh, I guess what we'll call it the purge of maybe certain metals or they begin moving. Uh, like I said, I'm not exactly sure if maybe they're in the lymphatic system or if maybe they're, um, stuck in the soft tissue, you know, maybe the glands, et cetera. Um, if somebody has knowledge of this, uh, I'd love to hear it from my understanding. Metals can kind of store everywhere in the body. Um, so when I worked on her, I kind of took a, a more generalized approach. You know, I didn't spend extra time doing like lymphatic massage and things like that. Um, 
We didn't do any uh, lymphatic stuff to see if she would notice a metal tasting, uh, uh, metal taste in her mouth. So if anybody has other, any further knowledge, I'd love to hear about it because like I said, this is a new case to me. Um, but we're doing some things that aren't in, you know, the textbook, so to speak. Um, and it's actually creating a, a big impact in somebody's life. So as we did this again, I mean, I want to say for the remainder of the treatment, she continued to taste metal. Um, it did amplify and, and get a little more intense at a certain point. Um, but she is still kind of a, a, a case study in progress, I guess you could say, um, on how the benefits are really going to kind of pan out for her. Um, the last time she admitted that, you know, for a day or two, she was still tasting metal. So I have, I have a full anticipation that she will be probably experiencing the same thing this time. Um, my hope for in the future is if she notices less of the metal tasting that, um, or reduced amount that the body is, uh, um, expelling it the way that it should be. Um, so from, I guess, some testing she had done, she does know she's a low methylator. So she does get rid of metal slowly. Um, but she has good bowel movements and she's staying on top of her, her, uh, her diet that she knows she needs to take because she has certain fluids that foods that cause inflammation. Um, and in turn, if she can expel her body is going to be able to detox and get rid of those metals. Um, so one thing I'm looking forward to seeing in the future is, uh, one, you know, does she notice less metal? Um, the duration after the treatment, you know, how many days do you taste metal after the fact? Um, and then of course the big question is, you know, how many hot flashes have you experienced between this time and this time? You know, when I saw you here and when I saw you here, um, you know, what metals and stuff did you taste? What time frame was that on? And just kind of documenting all this to see exactly, um, what it takes. You know, we find that a lot of tissues can be treated within, you know, three, four, uh, sessions to break up a, a fixed pattern in a muscle group. And, um, it'll be very interesting to see if we find the same thing for, um, for this as well. Uh, typically for treating organs, uh, unless somebody's, you know, maybe doing something or taking something that's burdening the body. Um, we can see organ corrections or organ tension go away within a treatment or two. Um, what's interesting about this is although we are treating, uh, not the sublinguals, uh, directly, uh, we're treating them a bit indirectly, but we're also treating the soft tissue around it. So, um, where is the metal actually stored? Is it in the soft tissue? Is it in the glands? Um, that's kind of the hard part to figure out. But, um, one thing that I guess, I don't want to say reinforces why the metal could be there, but everybody has neck tension, especially on the anterior side. So the front of the neck, uh, so basically from your chin to your clavicle, um, is jacked up on everybody in the world. I've met very few, few, few people that don't have uh, front cervical tension. Um, that tension in the, ends up leading to some sort of posterior neck pain, uh, will pull you into a head forward posture, which leads to other structural imbalances or can lead to other issues in the, uh, the rest of your body. Uh, it also leads to cranial imbalances and a variety of other things. Um, so it's going to be, it's just going to be interesting to see how, how this kind of plays out. Um, to see, to see things change structurally all day. And then to have someone come in where we're focusing more on the, um, on the organs, um, and getting things to open up that way. Um, it's just interesting. It's unique. Um, 
But like I said, you know, everybody kind of has this anterior neck tension. So whether you're stretching it, whether or not your therapist is working on it, um, it's not an area that gets, I guess we'd say a lot of circulation. Um, lymphatic massage is usually great for this area. Um, because the tissues are usually so tight, there's a certain amount of stagnation that occurs. Uh, so if you start feeling sick, a lot of times you feel it around your throat first. Uh, that's not a coincidence. Uh, your lymphatic system is backed up, start doing some dry brushing immediately. And I found personally myself that if I actually get on dry brushing, cause I won't do it routinely, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, but when I start feeling sick or like something's coming on that dry brushing does, I mean, it just does work. Okay. Um, it gets all that junk that's getting stored up in your system, which also means your neck is probably tight. So if you're doing lymphatic work, you might as well do some soft tissue work too. stretch it out and get it to open up. If you can mobilize that tissue and mobilize that lymph, your body's going to be able to take care of it, what it needs to, your immune system's going to better upregulate, uh, and get to actually what it needs to. So, um, it's going to be interesting to see how just the tension in this area, alleviating tension, um, helping the, the tissues that could be somewhat inhibited, um, come back to normal functionality. Um, it's going to be, this will be a, a cool case. Um, I haven't had one like this for, uh, for a while. And, um, the work is so simple. It's so easy. So easy. Like basic, basic stuff. I mean, I could literally tell you how to, you know, rub around your tongue or rub the floor of your mouth over the phone. Like it's not difficult to do. Um, and that's one thing I've realized as, as I've done this work more, there are certain things that people can do for themselves and that, uh, you have the full capability. Um, if you were told to do certain things the right way and you actually practiced them and you developed a certain amount of, uh, touch in your hands, uh, which you'd be surprised at what you can feel when you actually try, um, you'd be able to accomplish quite a bit. So, uh, if this is something that continues to, uh, to benefit the patient and we see some cool results from, or even if it fails and it sucks and you know, I gotta admit that, um, Hey, it was a shot, you know, cast the bread upon the water. If, uh, if you don't try, you'll never know if it's going to work out. So this will be one that, uh, we'll be touching base on in the future. Like I said, uh, I usually see this one about, well, I think it was four weeks from her, her, uh, her last oral treatment, but I want to say it was about two weeks uh, that I'd seen her. So, uh, hopefully I'll see her in the next coming weeks after the holidays. And, uh, we'll be able to get an update on this and see what's improved. I'll be able to report back to you. So the last one that, uh, I wanted to discuss here is a combination of a patient that currently came in or that I've currently been treating. And then he came in with some newer problems. Um, fortunately, um, he was already at the office when this stuff kind of manifested and I'll explain more why. Um, but it's also going to combine some, some things that I've learned from other patients as well with similar issues. Um, so a gentleman that I'd been treating for a shoulder issue came in and, um, it looked like he was bitten by bugs, spiders, something like that. And, uh, he went to the doctor and I, I said, Hey, you know, that kind of looks weird. You got them all the way up your leg and up your back. I could go to the doctor. So he goes to the doctor, finds out it shingles. So he takes an antiviral. It does all this stuff. Mind you, he's 69. Great shape works out all the time. Like he's really, he does well for himself as far as, you know, taking care of his body, you know, lifestyle, everything like he's, he's on point. So 
he goes through the shingles process. And as he's going through the process, I know his body's under a lot of burden, his neurological system's under a lot of burden. And he just seems a little sluggish. And then not the last time, but the time before that, that he had come in and he comes at biweekly. Um, he came in and he just looked old. And I mean, you know, I'm not bashing the guy. <clears throat> age is a, a gift many of us don't receive. So um, to be able to get to old age and still be doing the stuff that he's doing, I mean, I applaud the man. But he just came in and it looked like, I don't know, somebody just kind of like snatched some life out of him. I mean, he looked he looked paler. He looked, you know, he just looked aged. He looked like he aged a lot. And I could just tell like what his system was kind of going through. But the thing that stuck out the most is his, he just seemed a little slow and he didn't really mention anything like that his coordination was off or anything was kind of bad. So I was like, you know what? And I, we talked and he said he was still kind of dealing with some of the shingles repercussions, although he had went through the, the antiviral cycle and all that sort of stuff. So, um, another two weeks go by and he comes back in and I noticed the same thing, but I feel like it was a little worse this last time. And as we kind of segue into the treatment, he goes, all right. He goes, I went and saw my neurologist. They put me on some Parkinson's medication. Um, we're going to see if, if this helps. And basically I guess the test is, Hey, we're going to put you on this, this medication. Um, we're going to start you on a simple dosage. And if it alleviates the symptoms, then, Hey, you have Parkinson's and we'll go from there and maybe they can refine it a little bit more. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. Um, this gentleman also had suffered a stroke in the past. So when they were uh, checking him out, uh, apparently they did some scans and they said, hey, there's also a possibility that you had a minor stroke again. And he came in, like I said, you know, he was, he looked older, he looked aged, but he didn't seem like he had a stroke. Obvious, you know, typical signs, depending on what side of the brain is affected, the right side or left side of the whole uh, hemisphere gets affected. So in his case, the left side had been affected in the past, his right side had uh, I'll say was affected, but he didn't have repercussions. So he didn't use a walker. He still has full use. He can go to the gym, use both legs, both arms. When I had seen him, he'd been taking the Parkinson's medication for four days. And he said he noticed little, if any change. Um, but then when he mentioned the stroke, I had reflected back to two other cases I had seen in the past. And two other stroke patients I had seen, uh, one was a good friend of mine who it was a bit of a tragedy when it happened. Um, but he came out of it like a Phoenix. Um, he was a very physical guy, uh, had a stroke. Uh, it was severe enough that, I mean, it, I'll, I'll say it kind of like paralyzed the right side of his body. I mean, his right arm was immobilized. His right leg was very stiff. It messed up his speech and he had a very, very, very difficult time thinking and putting words into uh, or a thought process into words. And another patient, uh, had come to me a little bit later. I had seen him about a week after his stroke. Another patient, a female patient had a, a, a similar distortion pattern, but different symptoms. So physically she was more impaired. Uh, whereas the first gentleman, uh, actually physically improved quite well. It was the mental speech part that took a longer period of time to actually improve. Whereas the second patient, the female patient, speech wise, mentally wise, I mean, she was on point. I mean, just like boom, 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 boom. Didn't miss a beat physically though. Right leg had atrophied, especially from the knee down. 
It would get very rigid. It would want to lock out. Um, even after figuring out that she had, you know, a bit of a leg length and she needed a lift and she was, you know, trying to take pressure off the system, that leg has always been a battle. Her right arm was also symptomatic, but by treating along the nerve tracks and opening up the, uh, the compressed nerve pathways, we were actually able to get her arm to function better. Um, so she got a lot of use in her arm, but if she goes into a fight or flight state, it will react. Um, whereas the first gentleman, his would not. Um, so that's interesting too, to see with men and women. Um, and I've seen this in a couple cases, not a lot. I'll say maybe two or three of, of, uh, of each men and women where women seem to come out better mentally, uh, and speech wise, but physically they take some larger burdens from a stroke. Whereas men, um, mentally speech wise, we may suffer more and physically we seem to excel, uh, or if we do have physical impairments, um, we seem to, uh, maybe not get a hundred percent back, maybe 80, 90%, some cases, maybe 50%. Um, but the body seems to rebound better for men. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if that's because men are very, uh, you know, competition driven and, you know, to think that we're weak in a moment that we're super driven on trying to build ourselves back up, uh, all the while, while keeping our mouth shut. Um, we don't, men aren't big talkers. Everybody kind of understands this. Um, whereas women tend to be more social. Um, they're very thought process driven. They, they want to think things out. They want to analyze it. And I think because we both are structured a little bit differently, or we both kind of behave that way. And I know that's not hundred percent across the board, but as a general kind of use of this, um, I think that's why women's mentally, they seem to come out a bit more ahead whereas men physically come out a bit more head after strokes. Um, so circling back to, um, this other gentleman, uh, who I had been treating, um, physically, he still had no impairments. Um, the second to last time I saw him, the last time I saw him, he came in and he, the first things he started saying was, um, you know, Hey, I used to be able to pivot off my heel. I could turn, I could do this. I've lost this stuff. I go, okay. So immediately I start to think, even though they're testing him for Parkinson's, I'm thinking this is more of a stroke issue. Interestingly enough, there's patterns that develop with strokes from the patients that I've seen where, uh, how we measure cranial pressure, uh, we call them vectors. So it's, it's just a unit of measure. Um, so as cranial bones move, uh, they can compress one bone or both bones can compress into each other. Um, now the difference there is if one's just pressing into the other, it's a half vector. If both are pressing into each other, it's a full vector. And what I find with stroke patients is they usually have full vectors and it will usually manifest on the hemisphere of the brain that's affecting the opposing side. So, um, what this gentleman had and what the men and women that I've seen in the past have also had is they end up having vectors on the hemisphere or the side of the brain that was affecting the, the side. So, um, try to simplify that a little bit. Your, uh, and not all of them, a lot of the individuals I've seen with strokes, uh, were right side affected. So this pressure, these vectors were manifesting on the left side of their cranial measurements. So that pressure that was gathering on the left side of the cranium, you could almost see, uh, and there's no scientific way of, of describing this. This is um, kind of just 
my breakdown of how I kind of view it. But when the, the central nervous system goes into um, that kind of a shock, it's it reacts. So we see the same thing happen from like head trauma. So if somebody like hits their head really hard, or maybe in football, you know, they're a wide receiver and just gets sacked. Um, we see certain cranial pressures develop and the pressure starts putting pressure on different lobes of the brain, depending on the lobe of the brain, different things can be affected by that. And you could break this down further and say, okay, there's a vector here and there's a vector here. So that's probably affecting this lobe of the brain and this lobe of the brain and then dissecting further. Okay. Those lobes do this, you know, does patient A or B have symptom or any issues along the lines of, you know, this and this, um, so when we were going through everything, I said, we're going to treat this like you had a stroke. Um, I go, I'm going to be able to tell very quickly. This is, like I said, no foolproof evidence that we can measure to see if strokes have occurred. Um, this doesn't mean a stroke can be corrected by doing these corrections or anything like that. It's just that I've seen from my experience in my practice that when somebody endures a stroke, we see vectors, a lot of vectors manifest on either the left side or the right side. The opposing side of the body is usually then the side that's affected, which is a stip the typical uh, stroke pattern. The other thing that happens is as that gets, we'll say, shocked or uh, put into a state of inhibition, uh, as it's overstimulated to the point of inhibition, it overstimulates the rest of the nerve tracks down that affected side. So we'll find entrapment sites in the arms, the forearms, the neck, the shoulder, in the leg, in the thigh, in the calf where we can actually open those tissues back up again because the nerves feeding into those areas are also feeding the tissue. So if we can get the neurological feedback in the tissue to calm down, we then open up the impingement sites of these nerves so the nerves themselves begin to calm down and they aren't as agitated. Uh, it would be very similar if you had the ability to go out and grab an electrical line. Uh, that line is going to surge and you're going to see electricity coming out of it. Imagine that's your nerve as it's being strangled by a muscle that's in a, st a state of contraction. The tricky part is, is that muscle is in a state of contraction. So if you stimulate the nerve more, the muscle wants to contract more until you get to a point of overstimulation where the nerve is now so stimulated that it's inhibiting the tissue. So the tissue actually feels weaker. So the tissue is down regulating itself. It's becoming weaker or appears to be weaker because the neurological burden has become so much that it's shutting the tissue down for the safety or the, uh, uh, uh what would be a, almost like it's sacrificing that so that it doesn't continue to put maybe pressure on a joint, uh, or on another area, um, and further cause a problem that could potentially lead to a tear or something like that. Cause if a tissue is under contraction, that's so great that it's vulnerable, um, or could potentially potentially injure itself. If your nervous system gives you a hundred percent of what it can get, you're going to rip that muscle. So what I found is your body has this unique system of feedback. Whereas if the, the stimulus is so strong, it will actually, uh, uh, dampen, uh, or retard the system. It's, it, it brings the system back down to a state that it can manage. But as it does that, it creates weakness and it, it almost creates a lack of, um, lack of strength. I mean, everything, it just, it turns the muscle off. So the muscle will feel very tender, um, in a state of inhibition. So you know that there's dysfunction there, uh, but it will feel very weak. And usually PTs will go about trying to strengthen these areas. Um, and they can actually exacerbate or make issues worse. 
And that's why you'll find that some patients feel worse after PT. It's not that they were doing the wrong things. It's that they could have been overstimulating areas that were already stimulated to begin with. And as they stimulate them more, they create more inhibition. So by working through these nerve pathways, we can then open up the tissue to get it to function better. And as it functions better, what we find is the efficiency of the structure and how the patient moves also improves. So this gentleman, just by correcting the vectors that had manifested in his cranium from the stroke or from, a, a, I believe what they call a TIA, like a mini stroke, um, and then treating the nerve pathways um, down his right side helped tremendously. He was able to get some of the pivoting movements back that he was saying that he had lost. Uh, his arms began to swing again, uh, doing gait assessments, uh, which I'd also noticed with the other men uh, that I've treated that have had strokes. A lot of times those arms stop to move. Uh, again, this comes back to certain patterns that have locked into place and also um, maybe certain nerves that are being entrapped, causing tissues to lock up and, and kind of hold things in place. So um, he's also a bit of a, uh, uh, a case in the process. Um, I have no doubt that he'll probably be feeling better when he comes back. What's going to be interesting is how or what the long-term effects of having another stroke are going to be on his body because he withheld or he held out pretty well the first time. Um, there's no guarantee that that will happen again. Um, so I'm hoping by, uh, the work that we do and, um, by, you know, treating these things in the best way we possibly can, uh, we're going to offer him the opportunity to actually, um, recover and try to get back to at least some of what he was doing before. Um, you know, we don't, we have the mindset of we want to live, uh, have everyone live pain-free. Um, that's not the reality though, for a lot of people, but you have to understand that your reality of pain-free is very different than somebody else's. Somebody else can handle, you know, say 30% of what they're currently dealing with as long as they can pick up their grandchild. That has more significance to them than you going to the gym and deadlifting 500 pounds. Um, so everybody holds their theory or their idea of what pain-free is differently. Um, really, pain is essential to life. Pain is there to let you know that something's happening, maybe some change, some growth. Uh, but ultimately, it's a signal to indicate, hey, something's going through a state of change. And in our kind of work, we look at dysfunction. So when we see pain, we see dysfunction. If we can correct the dysfunction, the pain goes away. And a lot of times the pain will dissipate, like I said, with growth and change. If things are growing and changing, when they plateau, when they stop, the pain stops. That doesn't happen with dysfunction. Dysfunction perpetuates. It adds more to it. It becomes more complex, pulls other factors into it, and begins to affect the, the structural structure in its entirety. So, um, yeah. So that was probably a, a little bit of a, of a bit of information to wrap your head around. Um, but I wanted to cover those and they're a little in depth. And like I said, there's no real, uh, evidence or scientific studies about what I'm stating here. These are experiences and things that I witness, uh, and see by my own hand in my own office. Um, but if anybody has any information, they'd love to, uh, provide, I'd love to hear it. Uh, especially like I'd mentioned the, um, the metal in the mouth, um, and whether or not, uh, metal just stays in the, uh, the soft tissue or the, uh, lymphatic system. Uh, but I will keep you posted as these, uh, evolve in the coming weeks. And I wish everybody a Merry Christmas tomorrow. And if, uh, I don't get around to another one of these, 
uh, wish you a happy new year too. So be well, and uh, don't forget to check us out at nstandthings.com.